Welcome back to the Right Fit Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Pomeroy. Here, I interview fellow professionals and learn about the human beings behind the credentials. You'll be touched by their stories as well as learn from their professional knowledge. Keep listening. The next guest might be the right fit for you. Hi, Michelle. Hello, hello. How are you? So good. I'm so happy to see you again. You too. It's been so fun seeing you on Instagram. I'm like, oh, (laughs) I have a new friend. (laughs) Yes, for sure. I know I've loved your stuff for a while. So it was just so fun to actually see you at lunch. (laughs) No, that was so great. I'm trying yes. to find the best setup. I might even take down that mirror because you can see the whole stairway. I wonder if uh, I'll go the, in the, the corner. Setup. Mine is not wonderful. I decided wow. to do this from home today so I didn't have to drive into the office because actually my internet is really spotty at work and it's really frustrating. So that, it's more reliable here. I had that for a while and that was one of the hardest things with telehealth of not being able to depend on that. Yes. How, how has your Instagram been going? I've just been curious to hear like how you feel about it. It's a, it's, there's some challenges in my mind, but what do you think of being on Instagram? I totally agree. And I always want to talk to other practitioners too. And (laughs) totally kind of like, what are you, what are your thoughts? So I'm the same. Um, you know, I did it initially, um, kind of two reasons. Like I wanted more information out there and I wanted people to be able to see, um, kind of more of me so that when they're trying to look into a therapist, they can get a good, better yeah. feel like, oh, this is maybe mm-hmm. some things I could, um, relate with, or no, I don't feel like maybe we'd be the best fit, like a good kind of sifter for people. Totally. And yeah, I do feel like it's been that, um, it is a love hate because I'm mm-hmm. very, um, I guess, quick to not put rules around it. I don't want any kind of rigidity. Like I don't want to say I have to post this many times in a week, but you start to feel like you should, you know, like, well, if I want to grow, I have to do this. So I find myself in that that back and forth a lot, but right now we're in a good spot. (laughs) Oh, that's good. Yeah. It is a bit of a mind game that way. Like I noticed the other day when I was, I've been posting a little bit more frequently Uh and I noticed something come up for me where I didn't want to be bugging people. And that was kind of like a surprise. Like, and my husband was like, well, they can control that. (laughs) They can control, you know, how much they watch you or whatever. And I was like, I know, but yeah, there, there's something legitimate to that. Where it's like, I don't want to bug people. I don't want to just be annoying and be on there constantly, you know? So so that was an interesting thing. It's so true. And there's no perfect way to go about it because everyone, everyone wants something different when it comes to Instagram. So it's true. It's figuring out what matters to me, you know, what lines up with what I want. Here we go. And that's hard to keep in with. Um, I know it's a little bit weird to be on the speaking side when we're so used to being the listener all of the time and asking the questions. So I feel for you right now, because I think I'm in the much more comfortable seat. (laughs) It's so true. So, so yes, but, um, 
just so excited to just kind of hear about you and so grateful that you're even willing to put yourself in the hot seat and do this. Hey, but. I appreciate that. So this is Rachel Thornton. Thornton. How do we, how do we say that? How do we get the N in there? You know, we kind of roll with whatever comes out. Thornton. Yeah. <laughs> Thornton. Okay. And Rachel is a licensed recreational therapist, as well as a licensed clinical social worker. Um, she owns, she's the owner of Reframe Therapy, which is a private practice in Orem. And Rachel typically sees 13 years old plus, uh, specifically, specifically those struggling with anxiety, perfectionism, and shame. Um, Rachel uses kind of a mix of CBT and ACT and motivational interviewing, as well as mindfulness and DBT. And she's very much um, strength-based and uses a lot of self-compassion and uses that lens in her approach. Uh, Rachel specializes in helping people with anxious perfectionism tendencies, which is so cool that you have niched down so much to that because it's something that comes up. I see a lot with my therapist or with my clients, not with my therapist. I talk about it in therapy with my therapist, I should say. (laughs) So anyhow, Rachel, just so glad that you're here. Um, Really excited to talk to you. So welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Well, why don't you just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, Just kind of the basics and we'll dive into your story a little bit. Okay. So I am originally from Idaho. That's where I was born and raised. I moved to Utah actually for my internship after I graduated. And yeah, I've lived in Orem now for at least four or five years. And I'm single. I'm in my 30s. And um, yeah, just have my practice in Orem. And that has been a joy. I've loved it. Okay. So you came to Utah for or after graduate school, you said for your internship? Uh, It was actually for my bachelor's internship. I studied recreation therapy for my bachelor's. um, Mm -hmm. And then my master's is in social work. So, so how did you go? How did, was that kind of the plan all along was to get into clinical therapy or 0%? Yeah. I'll tell you a little about it. So I um, very much grew up not connecting with emotion, thinking therapy is weird, touchy feely things were odd. Um, Mm -hmm. it was not my cup of tea. I didn't have a great opinion of therapists and therapy in Mm -hmm. general from things I saw and heard about and even experienced myself. And, um, truthfully, I could have bet a thousand dollars, maybe a million, but I would never become a therapist. (laughs) It was just not my thing. Yeah. When I went to school, I wanted to study something that really felt impactful. Like I wanted Mm -hmm. to really, um, make a difference in some way. And I didn't know what that looked like. I had a lot of different things I was passionate about and that I liked, and I really felt, um, really guided and set on recreation therapy because I thought, okay, I'm going to help individuals with physical disabilities. You know, I thought about working at like a Shriners hospital or something. I love that. Um, but even having, you know, recreation therapy, like therapy in the title was even uncomfortable for me. It was, Oh, I don't like Uh, that. (laughs) It was weird. uh, That's too close, too close to therapy, Uh, too close. And, um, just as things would have it, my internship actually ended up being at the Utah state hospital. 
And I was clueless going into that. I had no idea what the Utah State Hospital was. I thought I did. Um, Uh I didn't realize that I was working with individuals with mental illness. And Uh, I showed mm. up and I was put in. And that's when I really started to become softened to the idea of working Mm. with individuals with mental illness and really starting to understand it more. Um, Mm -hmm. I ended up getting a job working with troubled youth and um, working a lot with mental illness in that sense as Mm -hmm. a recreation therapist running groups. Well, that sounds, that's a pretty cool story that you swung from one end of the acceptance of therapy spectrum to the other, (laughs) right? Even doing my master's was interesting because I felt like, you know, after a while working as a recreation therapist, I thought, you know, I need more. I need, I need to learn more. I need to do more. And so I, I decided to do social work, but even then it was okay. I'll, I'll work with maybe adoption or I'll work with refugees or I'll do international work. Even then it was, I don't want to do individual therapy. We're not going to go there. I, I, again, it was guided and, and led to a program where it was a clinical program. Everything was around therapy. I didn't realize there wouldn't be a lot of other things outside of that. All my internships were doing therapy. Uh, the jobs after I graduated were therapist jobs and it's how I started. (laughs) Yeah. So it was not the intention, but, but it led to where you are today and you're so glad. Yes. (laughs) Well, I'm sure that, um, I mean, I know that people, right. You're speaking directly to how many people feel about therapy and that it's kind of off-putting for a lot of people. I wonder if you'd be willing to talk more about that, like kind of give voice to what was so off-putting about therapy that you were like, no, I do not want to go that direction. Yeah. I really can connect with with those individuals. And I do think that that's something that I love about therapy is the more resistant or the more, you know, negative opinion they have, the better, because I really, former Rachel really gets them. I think some things that were off-putting is, you know, I had had a negative experience seeing um, different views of therapists from either the lens of other people, or mm-hmm. um, when I was younger, I did see a therapist and it, it felt kind of prescriptive. It felt like someone mm-hmm. um, coming in that is a guru to tell you how to live life. I just thought, no, people, people are strong. People understand themselves better than anyone understands them. Why would they go to someone to be told what to do? Yes. I think I just learned in time that I was wrong in my mindset with what a therapist does. And I, I would even say some therapists practice therapy incorrectly. I don't think that it's, um, you know, always done correctly by all therapists. But true therapy, my belief is that they, they believe that you have the strength within yourself to heal, to change, that you have awareness that they don't have of you. And you may be lacking tools or understanding though, of how to get where you want to get to. And so Mm -hmm. I very much lean into the belief that the client knows the most, the client is strong, the client can change. And that it is not me that fixes them. It is not me that is this guru to save them. I I very much uh, don't believe that. Yeah, no, I I hear that. I think very common misconception. I think 
I lined up with that formal way of think, former way of thinking when I entered my program, thinking that they were going to turn me into a guru somehow. Yes. <laughs> and yep. that I would come away with all of the answers. Like you go to school and then they tell you, these are the answers to all of life, life's problems. And then it would be my job to give them to my clients. Exactly. And no, right. That no. And it has just become more and more, I don't know. I'm just continually impressed by exactly what you're talking about, that inner healer that every person has and that it's my job to help them find it. If they, if they are not in touch with it, hear it, learn the language of that inner healer, get out of the way of that inner healer um, and facilitate that rather than being, you know, the all knowing wise therapist. So well, well said. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What I think is cool is that you already had that way of thinking. And that's why therapy was kind of a turnoff is like, I don't believe somebody else has all the answers that those are, those should come within. Yeah. You know, I, I am very Christian individual and I very much saw it as, you know, I am strong and I have understanding. And if I don't, I have a God that understands, you know, that was my Mm -hmm. mindset. And, um, it's interesting not putting that aside, but also recognizing, but there are people to still help you. Like you're saying, maybe get out of your own way or see things through a lens you're not seeing. And that was a piece that I just could not see at the time. Mm -hmm. Sure. So what happened to kind of open your heart to therapy as the route to go? Yeah. I think I got out of my own way. I love that phrase that you said, you know, I had the idea of what things should look like. I had the idea of what I wanted to do and how I wanted to help people. And I was so set for so long on, it's not this, you know, it's not this Mm -hmm. that I, I was pushing against something that was laid out before me. And when I finally accepted that, you know, I might be leaning into something that might be uncomfortable in some ways for me that I'm going to have to grow in many ways in, but that I could do once I finally accepted that I began to thrive in it. And I began to see how I fit in it. Instead of seeing all the ways where I didn't fit, I started to recognize, Oh, this makes sense. Of course this fits and Mm -hmm. started to recognize, wow, like how grateful I was to learn that knowledge and to lean into that. Um, and it took me long enough to get there. And I'm so glad though, for that process, even to look back on and see where I came. Sounds like a bit of surrendering to the path that was meant for you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, you, you got your bachelor's degree with recreational therapy in mind, ended up in clinical work and in the therapy route. I'm wondering, does that, do you bring that recreational therapy into what you're doing now? And if so, how? That's a great question. So I worked the majority of my um, therapy career, starting with recreation therapy has been with um, youth and with their families. So a lot of, um, at the beginning, a lot of um, troubled youth, a lot of serious um, issues with the law, with, you know, um, being able to be a healthy member of society, you know, because of how they were raised or grew up, these youth really struggling, working with them and parents. 
Um, I worked for a while too in private practice with teenagers and youth, really enjoyed that. And then I worked um, at a residential treatment setting, a different one uh, with teens with autism and working mm-hmm. with them and their parents. And I loved that also. Um, yeah. And so n- now I just lost the original question. We were talking about. Yeah. The, how recreational therapy might show up therapy. in your work. Yeah. <laughs> and so in each setting, I have tried to do it a little bit differently and I have adapted it to each setting. Um, yeah. It's a lot easier with teens. I've noticed teens uh, and kids that I've worked with because cognitively, they're just not developmentally able to process like an adult is. And there needs to be different modalities of treatment in order to reach them at their level and where they're currently at. And so I've been so grateful for that recreation mindset and background to see where we can help them um, in the areas they're struggling with recreation. So I incorporated it definitely, I'd say more when I worked in treatment settings And now that I'm on my own in my private practice, um, I definitely have the lens of recreation therapist. So I guess trying to help an individual see a full picture maybe of themselves. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes that means we go walking, you know, when we do therapy, Mm -hmm. if I notice that they're more anxious sitting on a couch, talking with me, I have fidget things in my office. They can be playing with or things to doodle, or we walk and talk. Um, Sometimes we'll do different exercises in the therapy office, you know, whether that's with a collage or art, or I've done sand tray therapy in the past, trying to do different experiential things to bring out more than just cognitively, let's sit and answer questions for one another. Um, So yeah, it's still part of me, um, but it has evolved and changed, I would say, as the more I've done therapy. Um, You're now working with kind of I don't know, young adults, would you say, is that kind of the, the population or say yeah, more about that? I definitely take as, as young as about 13 and say the majority of the clients I work with are 18, 19 to 40 year olds, maybe even like kind of late. Okay. 30s. Yes. Um, and I enjoy that balance. I really do. It's been fun to work yeah. with adults. Um, And I miss aspects of working the majority with kids and, uh, teens, but it's, it's been fun to mix things up. Yeah. To have some variety, right. Let's kind of start diving into a little bit about what you're specializing in. I'd love to hear, because it sounds like perfectionism, anxiety, those are kind of two of the really big things that you specialize in. So how did that come to be? So with this population, how did that come to be to kind of have your focus be on, on these things? Uh, That's a great question. Um, Personally, I've struggled with perfectionism in a lot of ways and worked through it and been able to see it for what it is. And that's one piece I would say. I never really saw though, uh, where I would bring that in into therapy. It's not a diagnosis in the DSM. It's not something that we I guess, call out a lot, specifically in therapy, we focus a lot on the diagnoses, you know, anxiety, depression, Mm -hmm. um, just different things with that. And I guess what I saw as I was um, working in therapy that so many individuals were very high functioning, very high performing, um, and yet we're having these anxious symptoms or these depressive symptoms. And when we get at the root of it, 
it felt like so many were coming back to this lens of perfectionism that like, I'm never doing enough. I need to be doing more. I need to be higher achieving. And it, it, it seemed that the more that we got to that route, the more we were able to help them in their anxious symptoms, mm-hmm. in their depressive symptoms, that if yeah. I went down the direction of just help the anxiety or just help the depression, it almost felt like I was missing the mark. So I guess I just, I saw that pattern enough again and again and again, where I I was curious, you know, what if, what if we just use this lens of perfectionism? What if that was kind of the target audience? And I've been amazed at how many people connect with that and feel very much that that explains them, that that um, really helps them understand what's going on in their symptoms um, when they see that through that lens. I wonder, as you talk about this, you get to the root and and it's like people are wearing these, these lenses of seeing the world through this not enoughness or this perfectionism. How does that lens develop for people? Would you say, how does does that lens come from? Yeah. Where does it come from? How do they, where do they get this pair of glasses that they are seeing the world through this, these perfectionism lenses? I think a lot of the times people um, pick up on it through the way they're raised, whether that's through maybe a parent use that same kind of lens or a, um, a coach, you know, um, either, you know, a religious leader or um, I, I notice a lot of my clients, it's early on that they picked it up from someone in. And then I notice they kind of mold it into their own thing it kind of morphs Mm -hmm. into their own view where maybe they're not even close to what that parent figure meant or where that coach or whatnot implied. Um, But it's, it's kind of then started to morph into their own thing. Um, I definitely think it can come from many different areas, but I would say that's a really common theme that I see. Yeah. Kind of early on early development and relationships with these adult figures in their life. Yeah. That's pretty common. Yeah. I resonate with that. I, I think that it's something that I wonder about, you know, culturally, like how it's can be just such a part of the cult, the broad culture, the broad system as well. Um, so I don't know, do you see that as well, where it's like, yeah, it has roots in childhood, but it's reinforced by our culture. Yes, completely. And I think um, perfectionism is showing up in so many areas, right? Like it, it's with body image, you know, we see that driving mm-hmm. in Utah down the highway and all the billboards that you see on how to make yourself better, you know, how to just yeah. take away those little imperfections, you know, or things that make you not enough within your body. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. we live in a very religious culture and, that can be skewed and turned into a, you're never enough always, you know, in a religious sense. Um, We live in a very high achieving um, career culture. I'd say Mm -hmm. a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of tech, a lot of really fun up and going business. And there's very much this mindset of do more, reach more, make more money. We're around very high achieving colleges and universities. And there's this competitiveness of, reaching higher and doing more. And if, if you don't, you know, you're cut, you're out. And so yeah. 
I agree with you that I think, you know, we can have a start in our minds, but then we are continually around this, uh, whether we ask for it or not, that feeds into and almost normalizes that that that's how it should be in order to achieve, in order to succeed. That's just what I would do. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's really interesting as you kind of talk about that. Um, I've been, and, and kind of the, the adults in our life and how they can kind of uh, plant seeds, I want to kind of say with that. Um, so I've, in just the last two days, I've been at tryouts with my two daughters with wow. these various things. My youngest daughter just tried out for a community play that she, that she wants to be in Frozen oh, Junior. Oh, and then this morning I was with my middle daughter and she was at a tryout for a basketball team. And I just, I just noticed stuff, just stuff coming up around this, you know, what does it mean if they don't make it? And, and like memories of my own of putting myself out there and not being good enough or not getting the part or not. And gosh, it's just something, it's just a real human struggle and trying to be aware enough around it for myself so that it doesn't come out sideways in how I'm interacting with my girls. You know, I even, I even found myself getting anxious around what my daughter wore to her audition. It's like, oh, she needs, she needs to wear a dress. So she looks more like Elsa. So she (laughs) like can try to get this part. And I just, I had to do quite a bit of, um, mm, self-monitoring, I guess, to make sure that I wasn't sending a message that I didn't want to be sending, um, that she had to look just right. And she had to have her lines just right. It was my own anxiety was coming up with that. Oh, that's powerful. And yes, in all of us, you know, Mm -hmm. and I, I think that's part of the part of the issue is when we don't see that, like how powerful that you could see that, that you could reel it back, that you could acknowledge your own anxieties for, you know, your daughter. Mm -hmm. And how often is that happening where parents, um, you know, coaches, again, like teachers, well-meaning leaders are not noticing, you know, that anxiety or that perfectionism lens that they perpetuate through their speech, through their language, that then again, Mm -hmm. almost normalizes, oh, this is how we should be thinking. We should be continuing Mm -hmm. to have this lens because everyone else around me is doing it too. Yes. Yeah. And I noticed in those moments, like I almost had this choice of a different, to speak with a different voice, to speak with like a voice it's the critical voice that I notice sometimes and, and a more compassionate voice. And I, and I kind of say that because I think it really ties into something else that you've mentioned that you focus on. And that is shifting to a lens of self-compassion rather than being kind of your own worst critic. Yeah. With self-compassion, I do think that again, working with individuals with perfectionistic lens and then bringing in self-compassion, it's almost Mm -hmm. like I'm telling people, sit on your couch for the rest of your life, be a bum and do nothing. (laughs) The reactions I get, it's so (laughs) scary. The reactions I get when, when I say, you know, let's take off that perfectionism lens. Let's, let's be kind to yourself in this process it's like I'm telling them to sign up for an unsuccessful life. 
Like, yeah, just give up now. Yeah. Give up now and, Mm -hmm. and be happy in that, you know? And it's so not that, um, what I, what what is it? Yeah. What I hope people can kind of grasp with self-compassion is it's showing up for yourself in the most basic sense as a friend, like how might a friend that truly knows you truly cares for you? Um, how might they show up for you with compassion? So I follow the model that Kristen Neff, who's a researcher on self-compassion, what she's researched mm-hmm. and what she's come up with. She has three different areas that she focuses on. So she has um, mindfulness as part of self-compassion, common humanity, and self-kindness. And she goes into how a friend might show up for you by using those three things and how it's really just turning it back around to yourself. Now, how can you use those three things when showing up for yourself? So for example, it's not saying don't have goals. Don't be high achieving. Don't, don't want to do great things with your life. It's no, have those things with compassion, with an understanding that you're human, that you are faulty, that you have weaknesses and you have strengths and that that's just part of it. And so, you know, say you, um, say you speak rudely to your child, you know, you've really been trying to work on maybe communicating things in a different way. And you have a moment where you just don't. And afterwards you feel really guilty. You feel really ashamed, even like I knew this, we've been talking about this. I, and then I just talked in the way that I didn't want to talk. It's quick. It's easy for us in a perfectionistic lens to beat ourselves up in order to raise ourselves back up. Like, oh gosh, yeah. I, I really sucked at that. That was awful. You know, okay, tomorrow I'll do better. I'll do better tomorrow. But yeah. it's a shame in order to, you know, succeed. And what we would say is, you know, to challenge that would be, hey, acknowledge that you're human and you're actually not going to talk nicely or appropriately or in the most healthy manner all the time, because that's actually yeah. not possible to do, even with all the knowledge, even with practicing, even with getting on the same page, you're still going to fail at different times. And that doesn't make you a failure. That makes you a human that can Mm -hmm. change and can evolve. And so a self-compassion lens might sound like in that moment, you know, on your own, Hey, that didn't feel good. That didn't line up with our values. Now that didn't line up with how we wanted to talk um, to Sarah, you know, or to Ben, whatever. And I feel bad about that because it doesn't line up with what I want. And I'm a human, you know, as a parent, I am a human trying to figure things out with this child and I will mess up. It's okay that I mess up and it's okay that I try again. I'm going to show up and do better. How am I going to do that? And then you're walking yourself through that. Yeah. So it gives you place for kindness and compassion in the pain. We don't have to say it didn't matter. It's fine. Sweep it under mm-hmm. the rug. They're fine. They'll move on. So yes. no, that, was, that was painful for me. And I think that was painful for them too. I can apologize. I can do better. I know that that action was not me. That doesn't define me moving on. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I love that. I just, I mean, I wish I could just bottle that up and 
take that with me <laughs> because, you know, just kind of recently I was able to have the self-discovery of what that shame is trying to do. And it's that shame is trying to motivate me to be better somehow. And you said it very well. It's trying to kind of pick me up, but it doesn't, it just ends up in this like down downward spiral. Yep. And so the self-compassion lens it's not like it takes away accountability. It doesn't sweep things under the rug. It doesn't dismiss things or justify them, but it just, it keeps you, it sounds like out of that shame and that in itself, just, I don't know, I think helps you show up differently it's because the shame gets in the way. Right. The self-compassion brings you back to your values. So you can feel guilt when you don't live in alignment with your values but guilt is very different from shame. You know, guilt perpetuates you forward, whereas shame stuffs you back down. Shame keeps you mm -hmm. stuck. Shame reminds you, yep, you seem to keep having this problem. This seems to keep coming up. You know, this is yeah. part of you. Shame starts to creep into that identity factor when that's just not true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I love that. Self-compassion allows us to realign with our values. And that's the focus. Oh, that's so good. How do you help clients shift? How do you help them develop this lens of self-compassion? I will say it's very foreign to the majority of individuals I work with, which is yeah. a really sad thing. You know, if you think about it, that it is so foreign for us to talk with kindness, with gentleness, with compassion to ourselves we very much want to give that to our friends, to our partners, you know, to our family members. But when it comes to us, you know, I hear words like that was awkward or that was weird, or it felt very prideful or boastful, or it felt like I was shirking responsibility for what I did by being nice mm -hmm. to myself. And so I think we have to first acknowledge how, how that's off. You know, that's an off space to be, to say everyone else gets kindness in their mistakes and compassion when they mess up, you know, someone comes home from work and they just blew a presentation and you say, gosh, I hate it when that happens. I'm so sorry. You know, mm -hmm. I know that you feel like that was everything, but you are such a good employee for them. I know they see the good mm -hmm. in you. And I know that mm -hmm. tomorrow you can talk to them. You know, you can work this out. That's how a friend or a family member might respond, but it's so foreign to us to say, no, say that to yourself, you know, when that happens, right. it feels like, well, no, I blew it. I should be upset with myself. I should beat myself up about it. How embarrassing. Mm -hmm. I've heard clients express that they kind of feel like they have to hold themselves to a higher standard for some reason. Yeah. It's putting mm -hmm. themselves in this different category. And so that's, yeah. I think, a first step is, is with clients, I work on awareness and I work on helping them see there truly is no different category for you than someone else. You might have had a lens to say, I expect certain things from myself or I should do blank. But the reality mm -hmm. is we're all humans on this planet, sharing it together, having human experiences that are different and are similar. And so mm -hmm. if they deserve compassion, you deserve compassion. And we all do. Right. So right. first kind of Just... putting ourselves in the spot. And then it's really learning how does that look? 
How do I do it? Practicing, mm-hmm. pushing through mm-hmm. the awkwardness, expecting the awkwardness, you know, expecting yeah. it feels weird and not putting it away because it feels weird. Yeah. Do you hear that from clients? Like, oh, this is, I don't, I don't do uh, like affirmations. They just feel odd. Like I hear that one a lot. <laughs> yep. yep. So, yeah. So just kind of expect it that, yeah, it's uncomfortable because it's foreign because you, this you're developing a voice that hasn't had space inside. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you're so used to the critic and the critic has kept you stuck in shame has kept you, you know, in self-loathing has, has actually stunted your progression. Let's feed the compassionate lens and let's like you're saying let's let's open it up and maybe it really hasn't been opened up for a very long time we can expect yeah. it's going to feel weird and we can expect that it will normalize over time mm-hmm. so yeah that's probably part of how you kind of manage that anxiety is just saying yep it's supposed to be like that it's a little bit strange and it won't always be this way exactly. yeah I think you mentioned earlier that, um, you've had some struggles with perfectionism yourself and some kind of interest in being able to learn how to manage this. So how has that looked personally for you with this piece of self-compassion that we're talking about? Well, that's a great question. Like we said at the beginning, it's so funny talking about ourselves as therapists. We don't do this. It's like, none of my clients know know. anything about me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That my name's Rachel and I live in Orem. So, Uh so grateful Um, that you're even willing to open up about it. So, so it's kind of fun though, to lean into that. Um, I think for me, the perfectionistic lens, I really started to see in perfectionism, you know, you want to reach higher, you want to reach higher. And we are always needing as humans to understand what's going on around us. And I think in this perfectionism example, um, as we're trying to reach higher and we keep failing and we try and reach higher and we keep failing, again, whether that's in a religious sense, a job setting, in a relationship, whatever, eventually we just, we're we're seeing, okay, the blame is me. Like something's wrong Mm. with me because I keep doing this. So I have to keep going. I have to keep cycling. I, I think of it like a cliff mentality. I'm on the top of the cliff. I'm on the bottom of the cliff. Okay. Get back up. I'm on the top of the cliff. Now I'm at mm. the bottom of the cliff. And we get so over that cycle at some point. Yeah. It, it's too much that shame cycle, that perfectionism cycle to where we feel like something's got to change. I, I'm done. And if we don't have awareness into the perfectionism playing in, that can become, okay, I'm cutting out of my life the things that are causing this. This relationship, I obviously am not good enough in. So we're mm-hmm. done. It's got to end. Yeah. It's got to end. Or this job, you know, I, I just, I'm not good enough for this. Or as a student, you know, I have students that they'll continually withdraw from classes or be done. Like, I just can't do it. Or this religion, you know, this mindset just doesn't work for me. And what's, what's so hard is they're right. And there's a skew of perfectionism playing in They're right. Yeah. In the sense that it isn't working, you know, that cycle of that cliff, you're right out of desperation. You do need a change. But if we seek that change through just cutting things out of our life or swinging to black and white, you know, outcomes that lens will just show up again in another month in something else. 
in your next mm-hmm. relationship, the next class you take, the lens is still there. Mm-hmm. And so for me personally, you know, it was recognizing that cliff. It was recognizing, okay, this doesn't go away after I change this out of my life, after this, you know, has now been gone. You know, I'm no longer a student. It's still here. (laughs) You know, people feel Mm -hmm. like it'll be gone once blank happens. And so part of the actual switch that I saw for me is recognizing, oh, it's the perfectionism lens that has to switch, not necessarily Mm -hmm. my external, it's my internal. And part Mm -hmm. of that is learning to see myself with a compassion lens, with a human lens, just like Mm -hmm. everyone else deserves. Because we can get really stuck, right, on trying to change our environment to help to help me feel better. I want to manage what's out here, and that might be like, like for me recently, deleting an Instagram post that I spent a bunch of time on, but that I felt sick to my stomach when I was like, oh, I don't think this is going to go over well. Yes. I delete it. Oh, uh, now I don't have to feel really so vulnerable. Right. It was like, oh, here the relief. But then I regret, oh my gosh, look at all that work that I put into it. And maybe there are one or two people that may have gotten something out of that. And I just kind of took that opportunity away, but I couldn't tolerate the feeling of it not being exactly what I wanted it to be. Yes. Right. Yes. Cause that's so, so uncomfortable. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to sit in that space. And oftentimes we just lack the tools, you know, of how to sit in that space, how to be okay with that because yeah. it is so uncomfortable. We're used to just, just pluck it out. Just, just cut yeah. it out. Just be done with it and mm-hmm. I'll have peace. Yes. And like, stop taking the risk. Right. I think that's another, like, don't just don't put yourself out there. That's a, that's a solution to it. Just stop trying or don't try, you know? Yep. So I don't, so that managing it outside is very different than changing what's going on inside and being able to tolerate those very uncomfortable feelings through having that kind of, it sounds like some sort like a dialogue talking to yourself internally to help you soothe those very uncomfortable, very human experiences. And just like you talked us through that and what that sounds like, you're human. It it feels like this and you're going to fail sometimes and you, but you still have strengths and that's okay. And all of that. It's exactly. It's that constant dialogue. And I would say that that's another piece that, that people need to start being more aware of. What does your dialogue sound like? What is that Mm -hmm. internal voice, you know, sounding like that feels normal to you because you're so used to it, but are we okay with it? You know, if you were to write out those things you're saying, I'll have people say out loud, you know, a comment that they said to themselves in their head Mm -hmm. in a given moment. Yeah. And then we say, okay, how did that feel? How does that sit? You know, what's, what's the vibe in the room after saying something like that? We just can become so kind of out of sight, out of mind with our thoughts. And part of this Mm -hmm. process is really bringing them to the forefront and seeing what are they, how is that impacting us? And what do we need to change? How how can we tweak that? That is so helpful. I'm wondering if you would like to kind of just speak to like, what would you want potential clients to know? Is there 
anything that you would want them to know about you or know in general? Um, that is a great question. I think I'm, I want all clients to know that I don't believe in, again, being the guru. I don't believe in being the know-it-all for their life. I don't believe in, um, even that they need to be in the most comfortable spot before they try therapy or that they have to feel super excited about it before they try therapy. I think I really want clients to know you can show up messy. You can show up with weakness. You can show up not fully understanding what the problem is or what even you want to work on, but just knowing I feel stuck or knowing I, I know I could feel better. I could feel happier. I think that's what I would really hope that people feel. My hope too, is when they come to me that they feel hope in themselves and that they feel, you know, an added measure of confidence in themselves that I have failed. I feel as a therapist, if they feel dependent on me, if they feel as if they need me to improve or, you know, for the rest of their life, that there's a time and a place for therapy. And that changes all throughout our life. Um, And sometimes we need it more than we need other times. And my hope is that they see that they can become their own guru. You know, they can become their biggest cheerleader, you know, their self-compassion lens that they don't have to come to therapy for that, but that's actually within themselves that we can tap into. Well, if, if people want to find you, what are, what's the best way to do that? So on Instagram, I'm Rachel Thornton, LCSW. Um, and from there, there's a link to my website. Um, my website is just reframetherapyutah.com. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. can contact me via there. Um, and my office is just in Orem, just reframe therapy. We're kind of close to the Costco and Trader Joe's off of State Street. Got it. Sounds like a good location, right? By Trader Joe's. Right. (laughs) That would be optimal. (laughs) Real convenient. Awesome. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Wait, friends, don't go. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you leave me a good rating and spread the word? Tell a friend. 